From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We've been doing it every week for coming up on eight years now. Since the pandemic hit March 2020, we've been doing it via Zoom. Allows most of us to be here most weeks. Adi Weiner, it looks like you might be at home, Odd. I am. Shane Jensen's here. He's at home. Eric Bradlow is going to be here for some of the show. He's away this quarter. And this is Cade Massey, somewhere en route from Panhandle to Central Texas. Uh, we're, we're, we're here. We're glad you're here. Reach out and join us if you can. You can catch us on Twitter. You can catch us on our mailbag. We have a regular show in that we're going to talk about COVID in the first quarter. We're going to have an interview in the fourth quarter. In between, we'll have open topics, cover golf, football, maybe a little hockey. But gentlemen, first, COVID. Uh, it's, it seems like, I don't know, it, it, maybe this is as active as it's ever been. We've got news right and left. It's really hard to stay on top of. Everyone's trying to make sense of Omicron. What, what, what do you see? What are you reacting to? What do you think is important for us to talk about right now? Well, I'm going to react to the explosion of cases in New York City. I think it's starting to hit other cities. Maybe D.C. is the next target. But what's going on in New York is just absolutely um, comparable, not in scope of the damage or death or hospitalization, but in terms of the distinctiveness that we saw in March 2020, where there was a pandemic going on in New York City and northern New Jersey, and most, most of the country was yet to see much. And that seems similar right now. So New York City, my, my daughter lives there. She just got out of quarantine today. She had a completely symptomless, um, symptom-free COVID case. She got tested because her roommates got COVID. They got tested because they were surveilled. They also had none to uh, very, very mild to nothing. Hold on, what my, does it mean they got tested because they were surveilled? Uh, if you're a teacher, you, get, you have to get tested every so often. Or if you're in a school, if your job. Um, our students, for example, one of my students emailed to me today saying, uh, I'm, I got COVID a year and a half ago. I've been back vaccinated and now I'm positive. They just made me take a test. And now what? I mean, and he wanted to know whether or not he could visit his, his, uh, his family in nine days from now. He's like, I don't know how to have anything. What, what does this mean? Is there research on, on my, on my situation and how long the virus stays in, in my system? And my response to him is there's no research. There's just no research. You're too uh, unique. You're not unique, but you're, there's not enough of you in a concentrated place. We know the answer to that. Um, But it really feels different from almost everything we've seen so far. So my daughter sent me pictures of people literally lined up around the block for COVID testing um, and COVID booster shots. There's just an enormous sense that this is everywhere. Um, Camelton closed for for the week, not because they were were afraid for the audience. They didn't have any actors, so they couldn't go. They couldn't put the show on. Um, Mm -hmm. Moulin Rouge apparently... Actually, everybody was seated. They made an announcement, show canceled. We, can, we don't have enough people. We're talking about the NBA, the NFL. There's just an incredible explosion of cases. And these are people who are vaccinated and boosted. And this makes, you, um, makes a lot of questions come up, some of which we're starting to get answers to, the majority of which are still open-ended. So, okay, so let's, stay, let's stay with this a transmission aspect of it for a moment. I'm, what, what I've heard from a few different sources is that they're estimating that Omicron is two to three times more infectious, more easily transmitted than Delta. And this is 
stunning to me because what you're talking about, Adi, is uh, it's not that we're all the way back to pre-vaccination, pre-natural immunization. It's not quite that blank canvas for the for the for the for the virus, but it's a lot less. It's a lot more blank than it was when Delta hit. So it's more infectious than Delta. And it has ways around the immunity that exists in the population that Delta didn't have. And so we've got a spike. We're looking at spikes that it's much more, much more transmissible than the original version. Oh, it's just like it's crazy how much more transmissible. Uh, one of, so I was talking to a doctor today. Uh, David Fagemau has been on our show. We were just discussing masks. He said in the beginning, a mask could prevent you. You can have a 15 minute conversation with someone often without a mask in, and there was, you weren't considered a transmission risk. You had to be in a, in an extended indoor space with someone before you were a transmission risk. This is alpha or, or alpha minus, whatever you would call it, the original strain Yeah. by Delta. If you were unmasked and you were having a, a, a short conversation that uh, forget it, but if you were masked, it was considered. Okay. Okay. Basically with Omicron, you need an N95 or you're just going to, it's just nothing. I mean, or you need to be outside. It just is. He told me that it's about 70 times more, not transmissible, but it grabs onto the bronchial cells with that, with 70 times more kind of tenaciousness. Does that translate out into two to three times more transmissible? Uh, It's hard to say because um, the real, a, a real issue is the vaccine, the booster, but basically what we're knowing, we know now is that the double vax without the booster, a kind of worn out double vax, basically does nothing. <laughs> nothing. Um, hold on. Um, nothing is too strong a term. I've, no, I've, no, 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 no. Nothing, it's more nothing like- in terms of transmission. Everything in terms of hospitalization or sickness. OK, but even on transmission, I thought it was Almost something like thirty three percent or something. Yeah, well, I think, I, I think part, part of this kind of thing. You <laughs> no, know, no, again, no, 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 no. That's that, that's not with booster. This is these are the sets that I've heard just that I was just listening to. Late last week, the Daily, there's one way I consumed some of this information was th- that show. Now, that's a couple of days old now, but that's in line with what we've heard in the last few weeks. And it's just a mess. We're still learning this about Omicron. But I thought that but the transmissibility or the susceptibility to double vax, no boost was around 33 percent. And that compares to maybe 80 or 90 percent to Delta. I'm sorry. Oh, God. You know, I would love I to it's say lower that- than that. I, you know, the, that's the kind of data that you have to look at, uh, look at where it's coming from, what it's meaning, how it was collected. You know, uh, um, Nicholas Kostakis had an amazing Twitter, Twitter feed of like 65 little, little, little nuggets where he toured you through all the, the data and the studies, not just observations, not anecdotes, studies on the difference between viral immunity, I mean, vaccine immunity and natural immunity. And without getting into the so, content- And Adi, that, oh, real quickly, natural immunity being that which you get once you've contracted the disease. That's right. And versus vaccine immunity. I'm not going to get, we can talk about the content, but, but the point that I thought was so interesting was the incredible variety of the results and all these different published scientific studies, um, not, not done by fools, but incredible variety of different countries from, from Israel to UK to, to South Africa to the United States to Canada, all seeing in, in, in broad overview, more or less the same thing, but with so much divergence leading me to, to, make, to make the observation here, which is I don't think we know the numbers. So I'll yeah. say this is what I think we know, that double vaccination provides a little bit of immunity from infection. Not so much that it should that you should count on it at all, like yeah. 25 to 30 or 40 percent, which is such a small amount. 
right. um, boosted viral immunity might bump that up to 80, 90 percent, right. which is actually an amount that you you really have to think about what's left over. Right. Um, leaving 10 percent left over. That's that's a lot. That's a, that's that that brings you down a lot. But there's so many cases out there. I, I was a boosted um, breakthrough. My, our students are boosted breakthroughs. My daughter's a boosted breakthrough. Yeah, hard pressed to believe that it's lower than 90, more than 90%. It just doesn't mm-hmm. seem Well, well I mean, though, I mean, it could easily be 90. I, I mean, that's there, just, there's, that's, two th- there's two things that are going on here that I think yeah. really muddy this. One, just the natural ver- heterogeneity across people, that this is just a very, per- you know, met, met, medicine and bodies are very individual and idiosyncratic so you know it's it's it, it, that kind of reduced i think the amount you can predict medically but i think it's also that you know these we're using cases or hospitalizations or deaths always like proxies they're kind of these like rough outcomes from like what's really going on presumably is like it affecting our kind of viral load in us like i find it hard to believe that a vaccine that completely so that me being vaccinated um does so much to my, you know, probability of hospitalizations, but does nothing at all to my probability of, of transmission because they're both kind of based on the viral load anyway. No, it's, it has, it's a completely different mechanism. The, the antibodies is what presents infection and the T cells and the B helpers are, are the ones that prevent serious illness. And it seems that the T's and the B's stick around much deeply. They're in the blood. They're in your cells. They, they rapidly develop in response to an infection. And the antibodies, which is prevent the infection in the first place, diminish and they diminish. And they're also tailored, right? So the, the, the idea is that the Omicron, way it, the way it attaches is sufficiently different from the antibodies made, made by your body from, from the mRNA or, or whatever you had, mm-hmm. that it just isn't enough. Um, and, and I've been looking at the, the booster data for countries that actually track it much better. And in the beginning, the booster gap between boosted versus unvaccinated, for example, was really big. And that gap and, and then oh, boosted and just vaccinated. That gap is, has, has, has gotten so much smaller over the last few months. So I'm going to just throw it out there and say, well, I don't I'm think, sorry, I didn't I didn't catch what gap you're, you were. So the gap between the protection provided by just vaccination, the two vaccinations and the, yeah. pr- the gap and then the protection offered by vaccine and boosted. Yeah. Um, and what, I mean, what, what about what about that gap? It started off very big that if you were boosted, your chances of being infected look really small. In fact, um, when I told Alan Salzberg, who's um, who's uh, associated with our department, is an adjunct and he's been on our show that I got that I got a. Uh, infected six weeks ago and I had been boosted, he was like, my God, you're a unicorn. The chance of that is like one in a hundred or some, or one in a thousand. He gave me this incredibly low number. I said, you know, there's two possibilities. One is I'm a unicorn. Maybe one in a thousand events happen, right? Or that data is not right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I was, I went on our show and I said, I don't think that that data is right. And if you go back now and look at it, it isn't anything nearly that is effective. Mm-hmm. So what's happening though in New York, which is interesting is because so many people have natural immunity, estimate is at least half the population, probably closer to 60, with the vaccination being so widespread, um, with boosting also being pretty widespread, that there isn't a sense of urgency. There isn't a sense that there's a, almost a sense of, hard to call it calm, but there's a sufficient sense of, well, you know, this is life today. Um, and they're kind of just going on. I'm Well, I, I mean, and again, I'm not sure that the Numbers are the I, I'm, I'm going to make this sound flippant. I'm not sure the death numbers nationally and internationally would are, are where we're at the point they're where we should be high. flipping. But, 
you know, I mean, if, if, if it really is evolving to the situation where it's really easy to transmit, but there's not negative health, you know, there's not particularly negative yeah. health consequences, where it's like the common cold. It's okay, not like the common no, cold no, no, let's, in okay, terms let's, of the current let's death talk rate. About, let's talk about it, because we, we're too early into Omicron to know much about the death rate. But yeah. in between transmission and death is hospitalization. And there are places in the world that know a little bit more about this. And it's obviously still early. And it's obviously super complicated. One of the reasons it's complicated is because different populations have different underlying situations. Some have had the beta blow through South Africa. So what does that do to susceptibility to Omicron? It's different than in the U.S. Um, some populations are much more boosted. Some populations are older. So this is a hard thing to study. But there are people who, who specialize in studying these kinds of things. So Andrew Lilly is an economist who put out an interesting thread here recently on Twitter. And he's looking at New South Wales in Australia, and he argues that it's an unusually good place to make this comparison. And I'm not, I don't I didn't even go into all the details on why that is, but this, he's being thoughtful about what you can compare and what you need to control for. And he's saying New South Wales is a great way to do it. And he finds his best estimate. Now look, I recognize this is all new and hard to do, but his best estimate is the case hospitalization rate for Delta 6.9% and case hospitalization rate for Omicron, 3.6. So about half, about half. But one of the reasons I jump in when I did on that is it's still 3.6%. And so if we're blowing up with transmission, blowing up cases, and we're going to say 3 to 4% of those are going to end up in the hospital, that's going to be challenging. Yeah, no, and I mean, I don't think we're at, certainly, I, 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 don't think we're at the point where this should be just sort of considered at the same, you know, like, oh, let's just power through it like it's the common cold. But, you know, I, I mean, the fact that you the fact that you're. Yeah, I mean, what at what point is the hospitalization rate low enough or what what point does the death rate become <clears throat> low enough where, you know, we we, we kind of. Don't uh, we we no longer consider taking extreme measures? I think I don't even know I, what that I, 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 is. It feels like we're not. I feel like that's the the speculative world we were living in a month ago and for a few months before that. And mm -hmm. it feels it feels like what we we're seeing happen in front of us takes that question off the table because of the numbers we're looking at. But but Adi, I know you've been pretty hardcore in this direction, so I want to know what you think. Yeah, about I think this. I think those numbers are 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 really really off. Um, the, you think those case hospitalization rates? Yeah, that across the board. I mean, I, I like the factor of two to three. That's about right. But the base rate's wrong. Um, the hospitalization rates are not nearly that high when you actually look at all. If you have a way of actually corralling in all the cases, if you only look at the cases that are bad enough to get attention, then your denominator is a lot smaller. So I've been looking a lot of uh, a lot of um, um, medication effectiveness. And there's a bunch of medications that are being given to people who have COVID, including the ones I took, and there are others, the flumoxetine, the bedentazide, um, and the, the remdesivir. There's all kinds of things that people get if they get COVID. And we're talking about pills, monoclonal antibodies. And the control group always gives you the, the, the hospitalization rates. Those are fundamental. And depending on who you're looking at, like what group you're looking at, that number ranges from about 1% up to about 10%, depending how, how ill the, 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 the group is. Um, Population-wide, it looks like hospitalization right, rates for vaccinated, I mean, so for the entirety of population, including vaccinated people, right? Um, and I think the thing about, with, about the New South Wales is, that's, is, is that, a, that they don't have a natural immunity there, but they do have vaccinations that are pretty widespread. Um, 
and and I think the numbers I thought were about 1.5% as hospitalization rates in a in in the UK or the United States or Israel. And with Omicron, they're expecting that to be about one half to one third of that, um, a lot less. Now, these are preliminary. There was an article in South Africa talking about rates. UK has got a lot of Omicron already and New South Wales are places that have seen it a lot. South Africa is about seven or eight weeks into its Omicron burst. They're already on the downturn. If you look at their case rates, they're starting to plummet almost as fast as they went up. They have not seen deaths and they're seven weeks in. So um, you, if you look at worth, worth pointing out, South Africa of all places, yeah, has dramatically different age demographics. Yeah, but that, but that, that to, but they didn't get I mean, they didn't get young in the last two years. I mean, no. they have two big bursts that we can look at and yeah. deaths track their, yeah. their cases. I mean, they're they're not the same rates as the U.S., but deaths were about a week to two to ten days behind cases in the free, previous two bursts, and they they're not even going. They're just like they completely diverged in this particular round with the Omicron. And that could be for a lot of reasons. They're, they're, they're massively naturally immunized by the third round. They, mm-hmm. There's some vaccination, not what we have here, but all this is, is, is playing and, but it's playing out here as well. We are Mac. We are, we are lots of natural immunity, lots of vaccination, lots of boosting, but it, the message that comes across again and again and again, we know for whom this is a dangerous illness. And we know that with greater and greater specificity, it's elderly people. It's people who have metabolic diseases, diabetes, um, obesity, and immunosuppression generally because of cancer and old. Now, those are the things that, you, that you're, you're the people at risk. And these people- Well, I, you, you, didn't, you didn't say the one other comorbidity. Yeah. Well, it starts with the word un. Yeah, uh, yeah, yes. But the thing is, unvaccinated- is still, um, if you're healthy, unvaccinated is not nearly the problem as being old and sick and vaccinated. And you still have to recognize those two. Yeah. And, no, and- no. Yeah, anybody who's old and would, cho- would choose to be young, like, like <laughs> yeah. in terms of things that are <laughs> at, the- in your choice set. But screaming at a 25-year-old that they're going to die because they're not vaccinated is just stupid. Okay, <laughs> okay. So, Adi, I, I, I totally get and accept what you're saying. And I think it's wise when we're talking about prescriptions to individuals about their own health, the rhetoric for the last couple weeks now, especially in the last week to 10 days, has not been about the individual as much as it's been about the collective and especially the weight on the healthcare system. And one of the concerns is that the healthcare system is kind of at its limit right now because of the Delta, because of one, the cumulative effect of two years of this, but then the Delta, the Delta load And one of the interesting things that I've seen, you go out and try to look at hospital utilizations. And if you look at just like their physical capacity, they don't look that maxed out. But if it's, if you're able to get to staffed beds, Mm. they're much closer to maxed out. And so you have hospitals where you can't, you might have half the beds in a hospital available, but you only got half of them that you can staff and you've got an ER that's overflowing because there's no rooms on the floor. You know, so this is the concern. Like, but, but but what I'm saying is like, this is where we are now. Yeah. And and the so if we have additional hits to the system, we're going to be in trouble. And so it's not just that 25 year old. The 25 year old's greatest risk is being in a car accident, going to the hospital, and not having any staff to be able to take care of. But the problem is, is that I don't know how to deal with this. I mean, we built in our hospital system. We talked about it, you know, offline during the week. But we have no surge capacity. I mean, we were built to be just-in-time hospitalization. I yeah. mean, it's crazy. 
And it doesn't take very much to push us over the edge because it just isn't, isn't, we don't have the capacity. And by the way, this is differential. I think the cities will have much more ability to cope than the rural hospitals. And this is something that, that I'm just throwing that out because I've been looking around to hear about places that are, that are overburdened and they're, and it's easy to say that they're more likely to be rural, but that's because um, they're the vast number of small hospitals are rural and, and they're the ones who have probably lack the surge capacity. This, the, right. And so it's a size bias, but the bottom line is, is that, that this is going to be quite differential around the country. And I think on, right. on vaccination tends to, tends to correlate with ruralness mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, New York city, I, they're not, they didn't need it. They didn't even have surge. They didn't have surge explosion. They didn't run out of room in hospitals. Even the first time mm-hmm. they had, they, they didn't, they ran out of room to store bodies, <laughs> but they didn't run out of rooms. They didn't need extra beds that they built in the Java center. And in that boat that they brought in, they didn't need any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. New York's going to be fine. It's upstate New York that's more of a more of a, of a, of a concern, um, mm. and that we have to have we have to craft policies and messages that are different. Well, um, well even that even if if you were going to say okay, well, you're a dictator and you want to you're going to you inherit the hospital systems that we have around the country, but you get to coordinate surge capacity. One of the things you do is coordinating moving staff around from hotspots mm-hmm. to less hotspots. Yeah, and and we've kind of there were, the first time around to take one example. The state of Texas helped that coordination process. And this time around, they're just like, yeah, we're not going to do that this time. We're, yeah, we're not going to get in the business. I, of I, have to say, I have to say, I'm going to sound like someone who, who I just don't can't believe I'm going to say this, but we need to be paying these people a shit ton more money. To yeah. get these, which, which people, which the people? nurses, the staff Healthcare people work, get yeah. it. I mean, make it worth their while. And if you look at people who have profited from this pandemic, I mean, I mean, obviously the MRNA may, I mean, my God. The, the Pfizer's and, and the BioNTech's and the lab cores and everybody who's made so much money providing all these tests and, and these and these some of these treatments that work or don't work. Um, why not the workers who are making this happen? Why, so so one of the things that has happened is that there there has been more mobility for, say, nurses across hospitals and across hospital systems. And one of the reasons one of the ways they get the mobility is they get paid more. So yeah. there, there, there are these opportunities, but. But I'm not. But it doesn't clear because there's not enough labor and the, there's not not enough supply. So you're a hospital administrator and you have like three things going on. One, some of your staff got hired away because these folks are you know paying you more to move to the city for a while. One, two, you put in a vaccination requirement for your employees and some of them walk off the job. Mm-hmm. And then three, they've been completely maxed out for more than a year and a half now, so they're just burned the hell out. Oh, yeah. and then by the way, four, here comes Omicron, and a bunch of them are going to catch it and have to be in quarantine for 10 days. That's your position as a hospital administrator, and it's not just you know Snyder, Texas. It's, it's smaller hospitals, as you say, across the country, and it, do, and it doesn't have to be tiny before you run into those kinds of problems. Yep. So, Adi, so you talk about, you know, so even if Omicron is... Like all, all in, all cases, Omicron, you're saying one estimate right now is going to be a half to, to three quarters of a percent of those cases are going to end up in the hospital. But that's if we blow this thing up, that's still a lot. Still a, a half lot. a percent of, of the numbers that we're probably going to go hit is a problem. A lot has to do also with what ends up happening while you're hospitalized. Um, what we saw in the early stages is that by the time you were hospitalized, you were you know, I'm going to just say it, you were fucked. 
um, it was just bad news. And it, and, and you just went from being hospitalized to being on a respirator to being ventilated to being on an ECMO machine. Because we didn't have the treatments back then. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. And, and I, and I think there's, we have treatments, by the way, speaking of treatments, the monoclonal antibody needs to be given early, number one. And there's a big concern that it won't work on Omicron. It's been, it's a tailored drug. Um, and, and it, and it, and it, and there's a concern that it won't work on Omicron, but, and, but the real issue is that we know what to do when people get hospitalized. And there's also a strong sense that Omicron just isn't as virulent. So even though the hospitalization rates, you, 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 we're making the supposition that conditionally unhospitalized things are the same. I think that's not true either. Okay. That's interesting. So you're saying not by not virulent, you mean not quite as dangerous or impactful, even if, right. I mean, even if it was as virulent, it's not going to be the, the, the kind of the probabilities going from hospitalization to death will probably be lower just because That's of right. the advancements we've had in the science of treated co- uh, in the medicine of treated right. COVID. That's right. But also, That's right. but also there's a big, there's a hope. And this is what we heard out of South Africa is that even if you do have oxygen level, that's sub 95 or which is what they typically will hospitalize you to get, to get, to basically get oxygen, you're getting hospitalized to be monitored and to be, and to be getting uh, oxygen through a face mask, which you can't get at home. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to need to to be on a ventilator or get right. uh, that, which right. is, which is an extreme outcome, which they know to kind of avoid, which means you, you don't need the staff staffing numbers. That that's right. That's right. So that's, that's, that's a positive possibility. We're still learning about it, but that's one positive thing about this particular variant. Well, I want to add one other comment and that's around the Pfizer pill that has been in the news. If Omicron hadn't taken the top off the news in last week, we'd be talking a lot more about this Pfizer pill Paxlovid. So this is a course you take for five days it's supposed to be very effective at reducing hospitalizations, but a couple of things about it. One, positively, it's not, it's not tailored to one variant or the other. No. This is a general, this is going to be effective against, they think against any variant, but on the downside, Pfizer apparently only has 180,000 courses kind of ready to go once it's approved. And so 180,000 is not better than nothing. Maybe that's a few lives, maybe tens of thousands of lives saved, but it's not a mass treatment for what we're looking at over the next over you know, the next so guys we're gonna have to hop now we've got two quarters of open topics coming up and then an interview at the end of the show come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball rolling into q2 now Got the whole crew here, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. Some combination of us are here every every week. You guys can jump in too. We wish you would. You can jump in via Twitter or email. Twitter's at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. It's our handle up there. We'd love to hear from you. Give us opinions, requests, suggestions, criticisms, whatever you got, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about sports analytics. Not a bad way to stay on top of what's going on around here. You can also send us email at, I'm sorry, it's not at, it's moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. It's our mailbag. We love to hear from you. We read them all. We get as many as we can on the air. Please reach out via email. Fellas, Q2 has become an open topics quarter. Q2 and Q3 both. That's the way it's going to be this week. Also, curious, in the wide world of sports, with all sports in play, what has caught your eye in the last week? 
Well, I've got a basically update because, you know, for eight years on this show, almost eight years, everybody knows I've been on the Tiger Woods train. I'm the, I'm the biggest fan of Tiger Woods as a golfer and everything else going on. Um, if you saw this last weekend's PNC Championship where he played with his 12-year-old son, they came in second, but they hit 11 birdies in a row. Um, Tiger's coming back. He's coming back, and he's gonna. I'm going to tell you right now, he's winning again. I don't know if he's going to win a major. Um, you know, he said he was swinging like 70 80%. I don't know. He was bombing drives out there between 280 and 320. So that's not so bad. You can play on the Pro Tour by bombing drives 280 to 320. If anything, actually, he only missed one fairway. So anything, maybe him dialing it back, he's going to get more accurate. And the thing that shocked me, I'm not in short game. He goes, you know, they, they even joke, wow, you can still putt. And Tiger's like, I've won 15 majors and 82 tournaments. Yeah, I can still putt the damn ball. Um, his iron play, every shot was pin high. Every shot was pin high. No short, no long. Uh, he, he looked, I mean, half the players, this, by the way, one other thing I'll say before I turn it over to you guys for reaction. One other thing I'll say is half the other players were like, Tiger could go out and play the tour right now and win. And Tiger's reaction was the opposite, almost like incredulous, like, wow, you guys don't get it. Like, if you think this is the good Tiger, he goes, he was talking to other pros and said, they don't know what they're talking about. No, I can't go out there and win now, but he's coming back and he's going to win again. So you're more bearish or uh, more bullish on uh, the probability of him winning another major than you were. I feel like we, like, was it wasn't a month ago. Or like, it was a month ago. It was a recently month ago. Recently, we, we went through this, and I felt like you were pretty bearish then. I was very bearish. But let me just say, John Daly, who played not alongside him, but watched him play a lot. And by the way, John Daly and his son, who's at the University of Arkansas, won the tournament. Um, but John Daly watched Tiger play, and he said... Hold on, no, let's, let's, hold on, hold on. So John Daly's playing with a college-age son, and Tiger Woods is playing with a 12-year-old or something? Correct. <laughs> well, How well, is that handicapped? Well, no, it it's, it's like, not handicapped. Whatever. Well, it is handicapped. It's not true. They have different... This is actually wonderful. You guys would love this. They use analytics to determine where you tee off from. And so the pros tee off from the back tees. And then there was one woman player who, by the way, happens to be the number one woman player in the world, Nellie Corda. She teed off from the women's tees. Then there's the senior tees. So I'll tell you an example. Who came in like third or fourth? Lee Trevino. Yeah, Lee Trevino awesome. played with Damn. his grandson. Right. So he's, but he's teeing off, you know, if, if Tiger's got a three, if Tiger's got a 500 yard hole, Lee Trevino, it's 440. And yeah. then there's the kids tees because not only did, um, there were three kids that played, um, Matt Kuchar's son, 16 Cameron played, um, uh, Heinrich Stenson's 11 year old son played. And then uh, Charlie Woods played. And so they teed off from the front tees. So they, but on par threes, they all tee off from the same place, which is interesting. And John Daly, who watched this, said he thinks Tiger's no doubt in his mind now he's going to beat Jack Nicholas's record. He says he's got, what? if he says, if it was the Tiger Woods I just saw, he's winning five more majors. Okay. What but, about John Daly? Is John Daly coming back? Because that I would pay to see. <laughs> well, he, let me tell you, he he looked good, but yeah. he, he was he's fifty five. John Daly's purely a senior tour guy. But here's the one thing I am convinced of: Tiger's not only gearing for the Masters and other things, but he's also definitely Tiger's gearing for the Senior Tour. Also, I mean, he's going to play some Senior Tour events in four years. He's forty. He's turning forty six in a couple of weeks. Uh, has to be fifty. But I, I just thought it changed my whole philosophy because I thought he looked great. Now, whether he can do it for 72 holes, I don't know. But it, it, it was every shot was pin high. His pitches and putting was brilliant. I mean, I was like, geez, this guy could win the Masters. 
what's what's the story why he's why he's why his game is going to be better now like what his he's definitely gone through he's got obviously gone through a major injury but before that he had all these physical breakdowns. back so, back surgery yeah so why would it be that his game is actually better coming out of this thing than it i don't i don't think it's better it, it can't be better but he, you could make the following argument and maybe this is true by the way it could be cargo true for a baseball player you could imagine it's true for a tennis player imagine the problem with tiger woods is that he's always tried to bomb drives out there 320 imagine he takes every shot at 80 to 90 percent speed from now on Maybe that's good enough. Like maybe he doesn't have to win with length like he did before, but he was too stubborn to realize it. Maybe the Tiger Woods, who's 10% less uh, distance wise, but is the more accurate Tiger Woods. Maybe that Tiger Woods is just the best iron player in the world. And he's going to, because we've had so many analytics people on our air saying, if Tiger Woods can be 10 feet from the pin, and I don't care, Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, John Rahm can be 18 feet from the pin, Tiger's going to win every tournament 10 feet from the pin when those guys are 18 feet from the pin. So maybe this new Tiger is going to be able to just not miss fairways, and Tiger Woods in the fairways with the iron is the greatest player in the world. I know it's a little surprising that he wasn't optimizing correctly before. I mean, here's the most competitive guy we know and the best golfer in history probably one yep. of at, at the very best and he wasn't playing optimally because he likes to bomb drives it's a little surprising you'd have to make that argument but i see adi wants to jump in but for yeah, sure i, I want to jump in because i don't i know almost nothing about golf so when i know nothing about a sport i just moved to priors which means i'm betting against you <laughs> that's all i can tell you <laughs> what, what, uh, what what what's the prior uh, about here i mean basically considering his injuries and considering how he's played and considering his only things the things he'd been saying about him, his own play that I did read that he didn't think he was going to ever make a real comeback. Um, that could have been just psych out, you know, uh, kind of trash, opposite trash talk, if you will. I don't know what you, what you would call that. Um, but I, it just seems like uh, I, I'm going to not spin a story around one tournament or one game. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, mm-hmm. rather than just look at the. the and I, Adi, let me just add a few other things that make it even less legitimate. It was only two rounds. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a scrambles format. He's hitting. Sometimes he's hitting his son's ball. Mm-hmm. Right. Third. He was able to use a cart, which doesn't have to walk the course. This was a flat course. All I'm commenting on is he looked like he still had all the shots today, right now, to win. He doesn't have the endurance. He admits that. He doesn't have the endurance. And he doesn't have the, as he said, you have to hit 10,000 balls to win the Masters. And he says, I can't go out and hit 10,000 balls right now in practice. What what does that mean? He's saying you got to hit the dirt. In other words, you don't just show up. Yeah, you don't just show up at Augusta and win. You got to go into the sand trap and hit 500 balls. You got to go on, does from Kupka, 100. Does, does Brooks Kupka disagree with you? Isn't isn't Brooks the guy who just kind of plays shows up for majors or, or you know picks up his bag and goes out there and and and? I don't few? think that's right. I think all the top pros um, hit a lot of. Anyway, I think they do a lot of practice, and I think a lot of practice that we never see. And I think what Tiger's also and this maybe is to Adi's point. How can he possibly win five more majors given he may only play 10 more majors and there's no way, let's say optimistically, because he's not going to try to play four a year. Matter of fact, the PGA and the Masters are too close to each other now. He already said if he plays a tournament, he probably just because of his body probably can't play for four or five weeks after that. So there's oh, no gosh. way he's winning five majors out of 10. I mean, no chance. No, not well, even- yeah, but I mean, one major out of 10. He could win one. one. Could see it. 
One he could, could win one. It. And that, that was kind of what you originally said. I mean, before Correct. John Day, da- John Daly kind of made. Yeah, he's, he, don't listen to John Daly, but he can win prediction. one more. He could win one more. He can John, win one John more. Daly was hyperbolic. Is that is that possible? It's crazy, right? I mean, it's, it's so out of character for that guy. He must have really seen something. You know, but Eric, one thing that's interesting is that Eric's kind of pointing out here is that 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 to win at the absolute highest level, you have to have all aspects of your game lined up. Yep. And it's an enormous drop from the absolute highest level of competition to the next, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, you see that in, in most sports is just a, you see these superstar coll- collegians, they get in the pros and it's like, they look like they, they've never played. Um, you see this with the, uh, with baseball players and when you move them just a little bit down uh, and they can strike everybody out and they face the, you know, the best hitters in the world, all of a sudden, yeah. boom, the ball's just yeah. flying out. It's just an enormous gap. So Golf of all sports has precedent for this kind of aged success, you know, at least like not consistently. Tom Watson wasn't Tom Watson wasn't like, you know, in the top 10 of a whole bunch of tournaments when he was in his 50. But I mean, you know, you can make a run. You can make Tiger, a run. Uh, a, of course, a, the one a the, major. The funniest quote, of course, was by Phil Mickelson, who said, I have one record to my name that Tiger doesn't have. I want he as you guys remember, Pete. Bickelson just won the PGA at age 50. He said, I'm the oldest person to win a major. He goes, Tiger's not going to let me do that. He's not going <laughs> to let me be the oldest person to win a major. So he's coming back. And I guarantee you, he'll be winning majors in his 50s just to spite me. Mick Mickelson has good lines. You got to give him credit for that. Got Eric, good lines. It, the golf season starts. It's one of the first of the calendar it started. year. This is actually the 2022 season already. Let's be clear. Okay. The 2020, uh, you guys may remember uh, the Players' Championship ended, and that's the end of the season, like it's in September. So we're already in, they call it the wraparound season. We're already in the next season of golf. Most people consider it uh, January is when the Tournament of Champions. So if you've won a tournament in the year, you play in Kapalua and Hawaii. But really, the twi- for next year's you know Presidents Cup, Riders Cup, making the Masters top rankings that started in September of this year. Okay. We're already in the season. <clears throat> the other early calendar year event is the Australian Open in tennis, right? Remind us when that kicks up because that's well, a, that's January. I think it's I'm going to make it up, but it's not. I'm not off by more than a day or two. January the 17th, 19th, something like that, and that's a big issue right now because Djokovic is now entered, which means he must be vaccinated or he's planning on getting vaccinated beforehand because the Australian government made it very clear relating to our quarter one part of our content. If you're not vaccinated, you cannot play. So that's mm-hmm. number. They won't let you in the country. Uh, number two, Nadal just tested positive for COVID. He played his first tournament back in Abu Dhabi. He flew back to Mallorca and he tested positive. He had been negative all along. He, so now he has to quarantine. And he actually posted on Twitter today and said, actually, I'm not feeling that great. I'm hoping to get better day by day. So now mm-hmm. the tournament's a month away. He already hadn't played for six months. So now Nadal might be out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is also the criticism, by the way, of Djokovic, is that he's cleaned up on the weakest of the majors, the one where nobody's really ready for the season but Djokovic. You know, he's got nine Australians, I think. And so is that the same as having <laughs> nine, you know, Wimbledons or 13 yeah, right. French or something like that? But either way, right. you're right. The, the ten, I, right. Nadal, of all people, I hope, is not making that particular assertion, right? Because right. isn't like... Over fifty percent of his majors are. I, I know, but this is the this is the, <laughs> uh, yes, but 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 Shane, this is the strange part to look at it. Even if you take away the French, right? If you take away the French from the doll, he's still John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors. 
that's the part that's shocking. Like he's still got as many oh, majors yeah, as yeah, Yvonne right. Lendl, right. Jim. I know. I'm just saying. And by the way, none of those people won the French. So I can literally yeah. say, if you take away the French, take the me- take, the, take the median across the tournaments. Who's higher, Djokovic or uh, or uh, an adult? What, what does that mean? Well, it would be. Like, it would throw, be throw, out, throw out the top one. Throw out the worst one, the best one. No, it would be. It would be. It would be. It would be Djokovic. But the reason is because I think Djokovic is the only one of those big three that has won each one twice. Nadal, I, I, Nadal may have won each one twice, but I don't think so. I think. Wait, wait. The thing is, you, you, I mean, you got me when you started comparing McEnroe to Connors. You know, you know how you do that, <laughs> Eric. That, that those are our guys from our time. They had such short careers relative to Nadal. Oh, extremely short. Oh, no, 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 no. The, the rate at which Nadal, McEnroe, and Connors were winning the other tournaments was not what Nadal's taking. You know, it's not the same. I would no, say. no. All I was commenting on is even if you remove the French Open, he still got as many majors as Lendl, Connors, McEnroe, the greats of our era. Not as many as Borg, but uh, the, 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 as many as the others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, thank you, Matt. Matt pointed out Nadal has only one Aussie, and I know Federer only has one French. And so Djokovic is the only player to have won every major at least twice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and sorry, right. and um, and sorry, and um, what I I, I don't know Sampras as well. Or? No, no, not no. Sam. Sampras never won the French. Um, the guy that Laver Laver won two no. Grand Slams. By definition, he had to have won <laughs> exactly. each one twice. Yeah. Okay, fellas, another winter sport that is a little bit in the news right now. I need to get an update from someone who's paying more attention than me, but I saw that the NHL has held off on their entire season. Yeah. They're like, so bit by bit, every sport's been impacted over the last week, 10 days. But here comes an entire sport that says we're going to suspend the season. What's going on with the NHL? Right well, now? It's, it's, I mean, I would, uh, it, it, it sounds a little bit more dramatic than it is. It's kind of like we suspended our final exams at Penn just by sending the students home like three days earlier than they would have gone home. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. so, so, yeah. so the NHL season <laughs> did, did kind of basically postpone or postpone like two or three days worth of games, but they were planning kind of a over Christmas shut. You know, they weren't going to be playing, not like the NBA in there, they were going to be playing on Christmas day anyway. And so they just basically like called an early halt to okay. the December schedule. Okay. But they also they they bought themselves a lot of wiggle room because the even bigger announcement I think than that is that the the NHL just pulled out of the Olympics the uh, the Beijing yeah. Winter Olympics. So and what, so that's going to obviously ease a lot of concern. What does it mean travel. the NHL pulls out of the? It means the NHL yeah, yeah, players the NHL, can't play. Yes, the NHL and NHLPA agree that NHL players will not play in the Olympics. Oh, that's 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 game changing. How so? How does they? Let me ask well, a question. Let me ask a question, Shane. How many NHL players? would one of the top teams have? And given they're just announcing it now, what do those teams do that might be fill of half NFL NHL players? Well, well, so I, well, I mean, the, sorry, I, I guess that each way, I mean, every NHL team has one or two or three Olympians on it. So it impacts every NHL team. No, I just meant, but you meant US... every, every, every country, Correct. How, what proportion? Well, yes. Canada and the U.S. and Russia entirely, or not Russia, but Canada entirely. So they're 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 going to have a have to yeah. have an entire like kind of NCAA sort of squad, or like kind of you know essentially With college six weeks preparation. Squad. That's right. I mean, it's and, and, but there, there's a lot there, of good. I, I mean, they'll, they'll let's be just let's be clear. clear. Team, but it won't be obviously as it won't be the top of the, each nation as it you know. Because and let's be clear, there, there are other professional leagues in the world that play at yes. a high level, like the Russian league. Oh, yeah, no. So Russia really will deal. be Russia will be hurt, too, because some of their top, top players are, are NHLers. So Alex 
Xander Ovechkin is not going to be able to play for Russia, for example. But but Russia, you know, to the extent that Russia has players from its own internal leagues on their Olympic squad, those squads are still going to the Olympics as far as we know at this point. By the way, I want to ask you guys an interesting hypothetical question. Kate, you may remember this. Just right as COVID was breaking, do you remember we had a show where the four of us each made predictions of the probability that the seasons would be canceled for each of the sports? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's, let, if we had to do that right now, like... If we lost all four of them, right? Yeah, yeah right. So <laughs> my, here's my question. Do we see, like, the NFL, like, there is going to be a Super Bowl, right? There's going to be a yep. Super Bowl for oh, sure course, in the NFL. Yep. Yeah. yeah, there's going to be a Super Bowl, right? Baseball, any chance that spring training is pushed back? Yeah, sure, because, but I think because of labor, not because of COVID. Yeah, well, the work stoppage. It's yeah, very, con- very confounded calculation for baseball right now. It's what about NBA? NBA? Do you think there's going to be a delay in the NBA? No. Nope. Just keep playing. I don't know. These yeah. are small rosters. These are small rosters. Yeah, and I mean, you know, they kind of have the flexibility to push back <laughs> at least a little bit, right? I mean, I, I don't, I don't expect anything dramatic like they try and bubble up again or anything like that. I think our kind of right. days you can, of you can really changing the structure of the playoffs is are are, are in the past. But but it's a fair question. Like that's probably the most vulnerable one. Yeah. What's the probability that the NBA? Suspends the season for two weeks, yeah. three weeks, and you could you could imagine even if they get into like I mean I, I doubt you know there's a real seasonality to COVID I doubt it's going to be nearly the issue it is right now in June or May or whatever but you you could imagine if there was a spike among the remaining teams that they would just pause it for like a, a couple of weeks or maybe even bubble them up who even knows but I just I, I expect that you know, this is probably going to be the worst that hits the NHL and NBA right now, essentially. Um, and so I could see pauses in both schedules. In fact, the NHL is already kind of doing one, though they've bought themselves. They were going to have a two-week pause in February that they now no longer have. So they're just kind of pushing things around a little bit. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think even the NHL season will end up delayed by everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. You bring up a great point, Shane. There's nothing that would stop the NHL from saying, let's move these two, let's take a two week pause now and just shove those games into when they were going to be. And no, uh, I, I think it's already in, in process, basically. That's, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think these two kind of pause and, and pulling out of the Olympics were coincidental. I think they're kind of a coordinated effort to, I see. you know, to try and do something a little bit better for this season. Got it. All right. Let's do one other non football note in Q2, and then we'll roll into Q3 with a full football slate. One other non-NL college or football or NFL-related note I know of is this supposed another two-way player that's coming down the MLB pike. So Otani has kind of taken the world by storm over the last couple of years, and is this going to be a new thing? So what's you baseball guys, what's going on here? I, I would love it to be a new thing in that more players try it out. I don't think anybody's going to have the success of Otani. I mean, that guy is a pretty unique individual, I, I think. But yeah, I mean, it would be very cool. I mean, and, you know, I, it's interesting, actually, like, you know, I, I was reading a bit about the, this guy, Lawrence, who really wanted to, he, he kind of declared pre-free agency, this was his intention to become a two-way player. So teams signing him kind of had that at least on their radar, if that's something that would factor into one's calculations. And who ended up signing him? The angels. the angels the yeah. angels oh, really <laughs> yeah do you think so, there's any league is there any team expertise or wisdom that they've gained from having a two-way player or is it is it is there any ramping up to be done is there any reason that have an advantage i don't necessarily think so i i, I 
they've made some mistakes. I think they've finally figured out how to how to how to utilize Otani and get value out of him. Although my estimation, the real place to get value is in the National League. I just yeah. that's yeah, something right. that yeah. I don't get. But not yeah, very much longer. I mean, I, I would say that's probably going away in a season or two anyway. Right? Oh, you mean the DH is coming yeah. to the National League? Are we that close? I'm going to say Cottage so. right now. God damn it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I mean is, 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 is baseball under pressure to uh, increase offense? Maybe a little bit. Oh, my God. Yeah, but that's not the way to do it. I mean, the way to do that wow. is. To, I mean, we can have, we can and shouldn't have an talking about having a how to fix baseball how to episode. Do that. I, well, I, I just looked up. Are you guys surprised that Lorenzen? This is Michael Lorenzen, right? Yeah. He's yeah. 29 years old. Yeah. Do you find yeah. if this guy is such an exceptional player, why is he 29 yeah. years old, and where has he been? Yeah, he's exactly. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be. I think when you said he's no Otani, I don't think there's much argument. Well, right. No, I mean that's right. He's not exceptional. Like he, he he's not Otani. I don't think he'll be the type of two way player like Otani, where he's like top of the league in both pitching and hitting. He's yeah. probably more like I'm going to average. He's not I mean, either. I, he could add extra value just by being average in the league at both, perhaps. Right. Well, let's ask. Let's ask that question. Would you want to have? Except, Adi brings out a good point. Maybe in the National League, because then yeah. the pitcher bats. That's. But being, let's say he's at the 60 or 70th percentile of both pitching and hitting. Why would you want that? Roster if spot. I can get roster someone, flexibility. Are you kidding? Roster me? spot. That's what it is. Yeah, I see. Because the and the ma- major issue is that how many pitchers you carry. So if one of your hitters is also a pitcher, it's actually and it's I, I estimate it to be somewhere just around an extra win a season, maybe or half a win a season with that extra roster flexibility. So yeah. Adi, walk walk us through where that that half a win or a win per season comes from. Why is roster flexibility such a thing? <sighs> well, because uh, it, basically what happens is is that when you have um, you want your, your, your pitchers are going so much shorter than they used to. And therefore you need many more of them. And what ends up happening is when you don't have enough batters, you don't have the pinch hitter flexibility that you need. You don't have the injury flexibility that you need, the catcher flexibility that you need. And it tur- this is actually one of the baseball perspectives. I think did an interesting a- a- analysis of this. Um, there's a player called Ben Zobrist. Who's oh, yeah, Ben great. Zobrist. And he's not a great player. But he's he's the sum of his parts is actually quite more, more valuable than. Yes, yeah, so you talk about Ben Zuber's like he's some new phenomenon. Wasn't yeah, he like the no, world? Wasn't he like the MVP for the Cubs? No, no, he was never well, MVP. But oh, he was the, the Cubs. The Cubs were one of the first organizations to really hit this player flexibility roster. But, and Zobers plays every it. damn position. That's what makes him so useful. You know, Adi, who was the player? Wasn't it for the Angels? Who was the guy that got the yips either at pitching or hitting and then moved to the outfield? Yeah, yeah, that, he was. So, uh, no, um, he, no, was, he, was, he was MVP for the Cubs in the World Series. For the World Series. But he was, one of the things that made him remarkable is that he played all the positions. Um, mm-hmm. I know who you're talking about, and I'm blanking on my name because I'm freaking old. We've had that man on the show. No, but I'm just saying. He, that Rick Ankeel. Like Rick Ankeel. He, yeah. he started off as a pitcher, and he got the yips. Right, and he got the yips, and then, yips, he, and then he moved to the outfield. The okay. And was a good but, hitter. Okay, but that's. What that's not quite the conversation we're having. I was trying to understand the rocks are the, the source so of this game, this extra game. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, it really kind of it makes it, I mean, just to kind of echo what I always said, the roster flexibility, it's not just about making sure you have enough batters and pitchers to get through any particular game. And we're using a lot more teams are using a lot more pitchers than they used to. It's also, you know, I mean, like, I mean, these Yankees fans, you know, on, 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 in this chat, 
constantly lament that. I mean, the Yankees, because they have, you know, they have older players, maybe more injury prone players, having not enough flexibility to kind of have sort of like your top sort of like utility people or some of the top people from like triple a kind of on your major league club to constantly be having to shuffle those guys uh, up and down from the minors because of that mm-hmm. roster and flexibility. It, 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 I, I'm sure over the course of a long season, it can make a real impact. So mm-hmm. it's having somebody that kind of can fill either role. Adi, how much would uh, – you've probably done this calculation. Let's imagine that somebody could pitch and they just batted in the pitcher's spot. Let's imagine they never batted any other day. Wouldn't that add like a half a win or a win? Like, oh, even absolutely. If- just look at the difference in run production in the American League and National League. All right, that, it's about a half a run a game. It, that, exactly. Now divide that by the number of starters and, you know, then, and then, and, uh, and multiply that by the number of games. So you're looking at at least another win, I think, just by okay. having that, that guy. Interesting. Just, Great calculation. All right, well, maybe it's a, maybe it's a normal, the, the natural extension of this roster flexibility idea is to flex across um, position players and, and pitchers. All right, guys, that's been Q2. Let's roll into another quarter and talk about football after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We got the whole crew today, at least for a couple of quarters, including one crazy dog. This is Cade Massey. Eric Bradlow's here. Audie Weiner's here. Shane Jensen is here. We are rolling into a football quarter. NFL, college, need to cover both of those things. Gentlemen. I know Eric is about to go watch the Philadelphia Eagles play in person. We've all been watching a little bit on TV. What's jumped out to you over the weekend in the NFL? Well, I, I think if you had asked us a week ago, not high probability, but certainly the modal, the most likely outcome, we would have said maybe at that time Patriots and Eagles and uh, uh, Bucks in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Now a week later, You're the right. Patriots – I took a it, hit. The Patriots took a <laughs> took hit. took a couple hits. The Patriots took a hit. And that's despite, by the way, I'm pretty sure, at least last time I saw Carson Wentz in that Colts game, had thrown for 58 yards. So they beat, the, now I understand, they beat the Patriots by 10 when Carson Wentz threw for 58 yards. So the Colts manhandled the Patriots. And then the Buccaneers, well, it's what happens when you have no receivers or running backs. Chris Godwin's now out for the yeah. season. Mike Evans hurt his string, went out in the first quarter. Uh, Leonard Fournette's injured. Um, and the Bucks got shut out nine to nothing by the Saints. So the good news is the defense played well. The bad news is I'm not sure they have enough offense now. So all of a sudden, I, I'm finding it hard to find a scenario now where the Patriots or the Buccaneers actually Buccaneers because of health and the Patriots got exposed a little bit. I, I find it hard to believe either of them is now going to be in the Super Bowl, but maybe I'm overreacting. The Bucks more. Well, so I, I mean, to turn to turn that even into a more quantitative question, the kind of thing I was thinking about, and this is really for Kate or somebody who actually has done these sort of like sims and models, is I, I know that most sims, including Massey Peabody, like don't have really an adjustment for particular players being out or co- going out or being injured other than quarterbacks, because that's recognized as such an important position. But I feel like like should like, you know, the model kind of factor in the fact that the Bucks now are without their top, you know, basically top three skill position players beyond the quarterback in offense, you know, like, like, is that something that Sims should kind of build in 
or would it be too difficult because we don't know how long they're out for, et cetera, et cetera? Well, we know oh, what we know how, how long God. Well, we know out. we know Godwin's out for the whole season, but so I, a couple things. One, we've we've talked before about you need to bake in non-stationarity in these simulations, and this is something that probably most sims don't have, and it's always been an advantage of Massey Peabody. We don't expect a team to stay at the current, our best estimate of its ability. This, they move around. We know this. One of the reasons they move around is injuries. So it's, it's, it's baked in and kind of at a, at a top-down level. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to say is that whenever the guys went out to build unabated and provide this platform for others to run their sims, we wanted people to be able to model critical injuries in a way that they thought was relevant. But we limited it. They, they did the program. I'm, I'm a minor part of this, but it was focused on the quarterbacks. And so what you've said is true. You need something like what's is the is the rate is the risk that every quarterback faces of injury the same? No players are different. Offensive strategies are different. And so some some quarterbacks are more likely to go out once they're out. What's the probability they come out and come back? How long are they going to be gone? So you've got all of these uncertainties that you've got to bake in, even with just a single player. And so, yes, it's very complicated to consider explicit probabilities and risk on other other players. The last thing I'll say is we tend to overestimate the impact of losing any one player other than quarterbacks. We probably underestimate the impact of the cumulative injuries that some rosters face but mm-hmm. we tend to see markets overreacting to any one player and so it's less important outside of quarterbacks Eric i wanted to build on something adi said in q2 which is kind of interesting which is you know um when you're not at the top even a slight degradation you know i was watching that bucks game and you say well don't worry they still have gronk you know uh, didn't scotty miller play well last season is that here's what happens those gronk is great all-time hall of famer but if he's your number one receiver right now in his career that's not a good thing. So you take away Godwin, you take away Evans. Gronk is great as long as he's the number three guy you have to cover. And you had Antonio Brown, maybe the four guy. And it reminds me of what Adi was saying is that if you like, it, it reminds me when Andre Iguodala was on the Sixers. Iguodala is a great role player, but he was the number one player on the Sixers. Really bad thing. You take, you take Scotty Miller, whoever else the Bucks have. These guys can't be one, two, and three receivers because the one, two, and three cornerbacks are too good for them. And so you put the best cornerback on Gronk, all of a sudden Gronk's going to be a good player, but he's not a Hall of Fame player at this point of his career right now. And that's what you saw on uh, Sunday night is that the minute the guys, you know, the four became the one, the five becomes the two, all of a sudden even Brady, all of a sudden. Wow, he sacked. He sacked four times. Oh, he's hit to the ground more than he had been before. Of course, he's got to hold on to the ball because no one's open. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love that analysis, Eric. It speaks to how little we know really about the way the 22 parts on the football field fit together. We just, right now, we just kind of add them up, and we know that's not right. And there are these interesting interactions that have a lot to say about what the optimal way is to build a, a roster. And we just, that's kind of one of the frontiers of NFL or football athletics in general are all these interactions you're talking about. Yeah, no, and I mean, there's the extra kind of interaction that kind of, I guess, was implicitly mentioned, but I'll make it explicit, is that it's not just about like, oh, well, now the number one quarterback is matched up against your number three or four receiver, et cetera. It's that your scheming changes, presumably, like your play calling has to change too. I mean, a big part of Gronk's success in terms of a scheme sense is that, you know, if you've got wide receivers that are keeping, you know, the defensive backs to the side of the field, then he's got a lot more space in the middle, even regardless of 
of what particular right. defensive back or linebacker is covering him. So I think it's sort of like there's the player player interactions and there's a, the player scheme interaction, which is a whole another level of complication. And I agree. It's, it, it's hard to kind of, I mean, this is what, you know, presumably defensive and offensive coordinators are doing, you know, every week in order to prepare for a game. And it's, obviously it's trying to come up with these kind of senior scenarios. And obviously the huge beneficiary in the NFC was the Packers. And there's yeah. two things I want to say about that. First, obviously the Bucks lost. Hold on, hold on, the- hold on Eric, hold on. You, I have to react to your first statement, which was yeah. now I don't see the Bucks and the Pats in the Super Bowl. And I, I and don't. Eric, I think you just, I think you know better than this. You said, am I overreacting? Yeah, you're overreacting. No, I mean, no, no. Because of the injuries, not the performance. I'm concerned. Mike Evans has a hamstring injury. They say he, you know, will he be able to go at full throttle? Fournette injured. Maybe not out for a week or two. So all of a sudden, you know, they're not. Remember last season, the Bucks were seven and five and ran the table because they got healthy and then started playing well. Now, yeah. you know, Godwin's out for the season. Uh, Mike Evans is hurt. Fournette's hurt. I, I'm just it's, saying. You got this it, Antonio Brown guy just coming back from the. Well, that's going to help. I mean, you that's going to so, help. I, I mean, I mean, yes. I mean, I agree. Eric. I, I mean, I'm not actually arguing with you, Eric, uh, in that I'm prone to overreact i mean those are brutal injuries that would be tough to overcome but i mean if you look at what the packers have been dealing with injury wise as well and i mean it, i guess it hasn't been to as many skill position players but they're offensive right. line they've been able to kind of you know the the bucks do have several games it's not like they they're still going to win the division we can all agree probably with that they're going to the win the yes. really fall up so the, so they, they've got several games the buy is probably out but uh they've got several games to get healthy i i their their playoff uh, their Super Bowl odds certainly went down in my mind, but they're still one of the highest five four or five teams. I think the thing and the thing to keep in mind, I think, is that there's no one or two dominant teams this year. I suspect I can go back and look at this empirically, but I suspect you'd find the top team or the top two teams to be higher in most power rankings than we're seeing right now. So, for example, if you go to where we are with the Massey Peabody rankings as of this week, we've got the Bucks still at the top. Now we're, they're down just a little bit from where they have been because they've been, you know, like plus eight or something. And they're about plus seven and a half now. And then the next team is like plus five and a half. And so you've got the number two team in the league at plus five and a half. I think that's quite low. There's more compression and there's less extraordinary performance or extreme performance than we usually see. And that just, that means more, more teams are in play and, more, and, yeah. and things are less predictable. And no, so I mean, just I think, to kind of give, give, yeah, give an extra kind of historical anecdote on that. I do feel like the, the number of teams that have been in contention for that buy this late in the season, I think is yeah. unusual. I mean, I remember season, like a couple of seasons ago, there was like a, a, a week 10 or 11 game between Pittsburgh and new England. And we're like, well, the, the winner of that basically has home field advantage for the playoffs. So, you know, you know, it's kind of like they, we knew there was going to be those two teams battling it out. Whereas I'm I think also, now it's just more wide open. Yeah, I'm just also concerned because now, as you said, Shane, not only is the number one seed out, I think it's likely the two seed is out. Maybe they could maybe still be the two seed, but if not, so how confident are you that the Bucks are going to play, win two road games to make it to the Super Bowl? Like, let's say they're the three seed. They're they going to go into Dallas. They won three last year, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, well, I just don't. It's doable, but it's not likely. It's doable, I mean, but it's not no, as likely. It's not likely. It's not likely. Either way, I that was interesting. And of course, the Packers. Yeah. We let's just we have to say one thing, and you guys can just tell me the odds. Obviously, the end of the Packers Ravens game. You know, we always talk about Ron Rivera, but Riverboat 
John Harbaugh, make sure I got the right Harbaugh here, um, decides to go for two at the end of the game. I think the score was 31-30 at the time. I know it was a one-point game. I'm pretty sure that was the score. And the Ravens go for two to win the game. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know. I mean, not – I. I don't think I so would let's have put some, done. Let's put some more facts on the table. There, were, yeah. there was less than a minute left. so they 20-something could... seconds. It would have won the game. Uh, un- or, no, no, no. I don't think they would have necessarily. There was 45 seconds I think left. there was 40 seconds. So, oh, on the all other side. Field goal. So there is that. But that's kind of goes, that kind of doesn't make much difference because it's applicable in both cases. But True. they're home. But another important fact is I think the kickoff line was like nine and a half because of the Lamar Jackson mm-hmm. yeah. being out and other injuries. The packs, I mean, the packs had a bunch of injuries. Browns have had a bunch of injuries. I don't think anybody's had more injuries than the Ravens. So you've got this pregame line of minus of plus nine and a half. I think most of us would say if we knew nothing else and we've got the nine and a half point underdog with a chance to win versus you try to win. Win. You try to win. win. Yeah. Now here's my question for you though. They had, scored the last 14 points of the game and does that reflect something structural about where the game was that that maybe no longer is that nine and a half point mm-hmm. underdog the right prior to be working with or the right probability to be working with that's the question i have like, or do yeah, you tru- and and just later just quickly do you trust hundley to convert this two-point play too well that's that's an issue that i've heard from ravens fans that that this is, a, you know, we've had a number of these now the last few weeks. And in fact, this game started the first series that the Ravens had the ball. They went down the field and ended up with a fourth and one or two at the goal line and went for it and didn't convert it. And it just starts invoking the last few weeks of a bunch of these efforts. And at some point you say, OK, we know the league wide averages for converting these things. Maybe we're not as good as the league wide average. Yeah. And maybe, therefore, we shouldn't be quite as aggressive. I'm raising I, the question. I don't know the answer. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of, of these kind of fourth down decisions and going for it. But what I'm not a fan of is if you're going to go, if you're a type of team that goes for it often, practice some more. Like, I mean, the number of like bad play call, like bad schemes. Like the one execution. the Ravens ran was, was, it was a bad scheme and bad execution. The number of like fourth, fourth and ones and fourth and twos and teams going for it. I'm like, yay. And then all of a sudden they start out in shotgun or something like that. Like, just like, I mean, I mean. I, I don't, Ravens I'm, I'm, are a rushing team. I'm reluctant to crit- criticize plays because I realize I know so little, but also it's so hard not to be subject to outcome bias. It's so hard not to say that play sucked, but I essentially because it didn't work. No, I mean, you, yeah. no, yeah. I mean, two seconds into that play, I'm like, if I had a million dollars to bet. I'm telling you, this play ain't going to work. It's a bad scheme. Okay. You got the no, wrong no, guy. You, you, you got, got the you got wrong like guy really implementing that play. And you give him a passing play. And I don't want to give you two seconds. Play. You don't get two seconds. Two seconds reveals a lot about the. Just tell me what the play is then. Just tell me what the play is, and I'll tell you it's a bad play for Hundley. Okay. Yeah. Really? But, you know, this reminds me of the, the big big fight in, in football versus the analysts. Who the, the football players don't believe in probability. I mean, they believe in probability when it comes to coin tosses and dice and cards, but not in football. And so their view what, is... Adi, what do you mean by that? Yeah, please. Well, I mean, what I mean is that if you say uh, they're successful, say, 45% of the time when going for it on fourth and two, they don't believe in... They'll, they'll say that's a percentage, but when you fail, it's because you called the wrong play or you executed it wrong. It's, it's, they don't... They want to acknowledge that there's something external that's just random, like maybe that, that, you, that we can't quite figure out what happened. That you wouldn't, that, that in other words, if you, well, had, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I, I want to, we should make a distinction between retrospectively attributing why a play failed 
as opposed to like you That's know right. thinking no, prospectively no, so that obviously would, no, if you ran it again that would exact thing would happen so there the, the, so the thing is is that and this is there's been actually a big fight about this i was seeing the analytics football twitter kind of go blow up about this whereby the analyst the the actual announcers and the players will say you know it, it failed several times therefore it was wrong thing to do and it's not just resulting which is what, what you've talked about with with, mm-hmm. with outcome bias outcome bias is that it didn't work so therefore it wasn't a good idea they don't see it as as something that is um that the past data is useful the way we see it as statisticians. We see past data as allowing us to build a model, even if it's inaccurately, but enough to be useful that we can, we can make decisions based on it. And their view is past is the past. And you're, and I mean, maybe you'll use the past to learn about what works, but it, when a play fails, it's not because it, it's because you failed to execute it or you chose the wrong play. Mm-hmm. So I'm going mm-hmm. to I'm going to criticize myself here for a second but Adi's made me realize why I have to criticize myself. So when we were talking about golf in Q2, I said something and then you guys both you Kate and Adi mentioned this. Like so I'm assuming the greatest golf player in the world doesn't know that he could have dialed back to 90% for his career. Yeah. And and I'm assuming that a very analytics oriented team the Baltimore Ravens and they're just randomly calling a play. Let's just try <laughs> this one out and see if Hundley can do it. Let's, you know, so you're making me realize that I'm, it's okay to criticize, but it's like, it's not that they don't know, like Tiger knows what a 90% swing for Tiger gives him in distance and everything else. And I'm sure the Baltimore Ravens had I'll call it three or four plays that they practice quite a bit that they believe that that one of the ones they practice gave them the greatest chance to convert. So at some point when you criticize, and I'm criticizing myself here, you have to make, if you're going to make an assumption of total irrationality on the part of the agent, that's a little strange. It's a little bit of a strange (laughs) argument to make, given what we do know about both Tiger Woods and what we know about the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, interesting criticism, but I want to point out, you can easily make a, 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 a random model for for play calling and play play defense blocking and that would look like a play just fails. Um, like it was the wrong play. So for example, let's say you have three plays. I'm going to make it simple. You have two plays on offense and you have two defensive schema. And if you line them up properly, the offensive schema looks terrible, right? Because you chose the exact defense that matches, but if you're right. mismatch, it's, 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 uh, it's easy for whoever, uh, let's say for the offense. And if it's a purely randomized strategy, that's actually the right thing to do. We have some game theory that says that's the best thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then what, but what it looks like on the field is you've called the wrong play because that you walked right into their defense and mm-hmm. well that, but, but you're not seeing the random, the randomness in the background. Well, that's right. I mean, but that also, I know Shane, you want to jump in a second. Let me just say one thing directly on that, which is part of Eric's story that he didn't add. And that is you, you also want to give credit to the defense. And that's something that, Mm-hmm. The influence has the offense has some influence over, but it's not entirely. In fact, largely not influential over. And so, you know, a, a good play call is going to be a lot look a lot worse, and obviously be less successful if the defense had an even better play call. Yeah, though I mean, I I will just point out that usually um, the the offense has a, a has the ability to change their minds about their play call. They get to see how the defense is lining up. There's still trickery involved, but like There's a quarterback, a- the offense typically goes into any play with actually two possible plays yeah. or at least that could be called and they can obviously change it once they see what the defensive scheme is. But, so it's not as like, you say, you know, there's a, there's a lot of trickery. And so, yeah, given that you know, and I mean, I, I think that type of thing, you know, this, I mean, that's 
having that ability is why they don't do like a purely randomized strategy. And just to kind of close out the Ravens decision kind of story, I do think it's ironic. I mean, I'm a huge fan, again, of this more progressive kind of decision making. I think it is ironic that the one team that's the leader in the NFL for this also just happens to employ the greatest kicker of all time. (laughs) That they've got literally the greatest kicker in the history of the NFL on their squad, but they're going for it. More, more, more often than the average, t- much more often than the average. Well, t- so that really gives them more credit, right? And that's yeah, no, I mean, well, I mean, that they've, they, you know, they've, they've kind of, they've run the numbers and presumably they, they, they're kind of max on what the kicker probability is across. Like to right. the extent there's heterogeneity right. in kicker performance, they right. get to look at the max of kicker and they're still choosing to go for it more often. I, I, that's, that's a, it's a good point uh, and, and, and interesting. And it is ironic that those two things exist together. Adi. Can I make a really wonky uh, uh, observation? It As really opposed to your usual one, Sadi? No, yeah. this, when it comes to football, they're usually kind of dumb, but I'm going to make a really wonky one. Uh, most of these con- uh, calculations on fourth down decision-making, I've been, I've been at least observing, they, they, they tend to be based on win probability um, calculations. So you basically what you do is you take the win probability if you succeed versus win probability if you fail, and then, and then you do the kick, and, and then you compare the expected value the wind that's probably, how we do it that's how the bot does it uh, uh, but yeah, there's how, two how ways do you know what that how do you know that's what the ravens are doing I, no i don't know what the ravens do I have no clue what the ravens do yeah. and you know i have no clue what the ravens do i only know what the what the analysts do and talk right. about but there's another way that the analysts can do things again i don't know what the ravens are doing and that is to look at expected points or expected value um given your your situation and my kind of head would argue that expected value is a really good thing in the first part of the game and win probability in the latter part of the game. Mm-hmm. And the reason yep. for that is that win probability is very hard to estimate when the probabilities are squished towards 50% and not that volatile um, based on what happens. Because if it's, you know, if you, if you go up seven, nothing versus three, nothing early in the game, that doesn't move yep. the, the line very much. And the uncertainty is uh, substantial, right? And it can make a difference. So I'm actually arguing that maybe potentially some of the things that the Ravens are doing are not have to do with the way they're figuring out what is their optimizer function and potentially. Well, I, can, I can, I can tell you they're about from what I've, from what I've seen and heard, they're about as thoughtful as an organization could be. Uh, I I've had the privilege of sitting down with some of their analytics, the guys who work on the coaching side and the extent to which they've thought through every scenario possible is just jaw dropping. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you, you, it's, it's really hard to add value given how much time and thoughtfulness they put in this situation. So it'd be a little surprising if they haven't thought that. Also, Brian Burke has modeled that in both directions extensively. And he's, he's, he'd be a great one to talk to about, is there a kind of an optimal transition point in the game where you move from an EPA-based model to a win probability-based model? Interesting thought. I, I just want to kind of sympathize with the challenge that these decision makers face where they have algorithms or models suggesting one thing and you have you know all the other considerations that might go in the other direction and how do you know when to you know stay with the model versus deviate from the model and it's and and you know the model doesn't capture everything Mm -hmm. and it's the job it's the job of the guy on the field there to decide when the situation is sufficient even a guy committed to models when is the is the, the this particular situation sufficiently deviant from the model that we should go away from it it's a really hard it's a really hard 
It's yeah, no, hard. it's difficult. I mean, we saw it actually not just in that game, but in the Chargers game. I think the Chargers went for it on like fourth and short about four or five yeah. times and just yeah. missed every single time, yeah. turned it yeah. over like every single time. And I mean, I mean, I guess kudos to the coach Stay, for sticking Staley. with their yeah. process, even though the outcomes kept hitting wrong for them. Or you could say, well, maybe there was something about their performance, their ability to actually like, you know, to actually execute in those situations that suggests they should have gone away from their models at some point around like try three or four or five. Who knows? But I, this, it feels like we're kind of at a high watermark for criticism of models, but partly because of, we've got a couple of strong adherents now in the NFL and they've run into some trouble. And so, man, the critics just come out of the out of the woodwork. And I mean, it, there's a part of me that feels like great. <laughs> you know, that yeah. just means the edges are going to last. But um, I, I, I just want to acknowledge that it's we can you can get this wrong in both directions. You can be too sure of the model and apply it, you know, kind of blindly. And, and frankly, we need to stay with models pretty well. But it's not there's going to be situations where we need to deviate. I don't know whether Harbaugh was in the situation or not or whether Staley was in the situation or not. Mostly, I think the mistake is in the other direction. I just want to acknowledge that it's possible yeah. to be too blind about it. Um, all right. So what about on the college football side? We've had bowl games. We're kind of, I don't know, a quarter of the way through a very fat bowl. So, you know, 42 bowls this year. We have a handful coming up, but there's probably been more activity outside of the games themselves in recent weeks. So that, well, this is kind of a, a border story between college football and NFL. We saw Urban Meyer canned last right. week, which is one of the bigger news stories in the NFL. Um, of course, wildly successful college coaches just couldn't quite get it done. Am I wrong to take some pleasure in that, Shane? Am I a lesser human being? No, is- no. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, you know, given, given what I have either heard or inferred about Urban Meyer's personality, like his dawn, downfall, I, I don't think, you know, he, he doesn't paint himself as a particular sympathy. He doesn't paint himself as a protagonist. Let's just say. Yeah. Well, you know? I, by, by, I'm sad because I'm a little sad because he's gone. One of the things sports gives us is is villains. And I think this is a role sports play. It lets us like act out some of our hostilities in these relatively safe ways. And so it's nice. We lost two of the great villains this yeah. year. In but the I mean, I, I mean, he might. I mean, you can be encouraged that I, I think he'll probably be back. Uh, no, I don't his, know. Back to his villainy in, 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 in the format that he's actually more suited for, which is college. college? Football, right? Who's going who's gonna, to gonna, jump in and ask a question? Is it? One would presume that the skills that one needs to become a great college football coach are not that overlapping with the ones that you need to become a great professional. I mean, professional athletes, we talk about that gap, right? Earlier on uh, in our second quarter, we talk about the gap between professional and college. It's really big. And well, yeah, it, it, I, I don't pretend to I don't pretend to really know what it is. Jimmy Johnson was quoted sometime in the last week after this blow up with Meyer that it's not it's a different universe. Essentially, yeah. it's like it's not just a, it's not a fine. But I mean, you do have I, I mean, I mean, and I, th- I think certainly um, Meyer's kind of personality of like my way or the highway works when you have entirety of leverage over your athletes as opposed to very little but your job um, as, a, but, as a coach is to, to make them better when they're when, i mean college collegians are getting much better very rapidly and and professional players are also getting better until they stop but at a much slower rate so it's you'd argue that the col- the function of a co- collegiate coach is sort, sort of much more centered on uh improvement 
Yeah, I just, I, I mean, you know, certainly I, th- I think it's overlapping skills. I, I mean, you know, I only point out that there, I mean, obviously Myers, there, there's been high profile college coaches that have not done well at the NFL. Saban's another one that didn't do well in his NFL stint. But there's also been ones that did make that transfer very nicely. Like Pete Carroll, for example, was a very successful college and which it might be a little surpri- coach. It might be a little surprising given he's kind of a culture guy and kind of mm-hmm. a rah-rah guy. It happened to work for a while, yeah. work for a while in the NFL. Adi, the one thing I would say about development is that I think you're right about player development being more important in college than pros for sure. But the head coach doesn't do as much of that hands-on. The head coach in both those environments is kind of responsible for building the staff and keeping the staff accountable. And those position coaches are doing a lot of the development work. The single biggest difference is that a college coach has to play a very active role in recruiting Mm -hmm. high school kids to his team. And that's something that, you know, those guys in the pros are some of them really would rather not have anything to do with it. And that, that is a fundamentally different skill, but presumably there's just a whole different set of complexity in running an NFL organization and dealing with grown men instead of 19 year old kids, you know, I mean, not your kids are difficult, but how about a multi multi-year all pro 32 year old and you're <laughs> another matter. This is a tough even kind of comparison that I'm sending up here, but in your estimation, Kate, do you kind of feel like there's a little bit more patience for coaching regimes in college football versus the NFL. Like, I mean, I feel like a an NFL coach, you know, unless they've had success, you know, really like you you've got like a maybe two or three year window with most organizations. Whereas I kind of, my impression at least is with college that people tend to, unless it's a spectacularly bad job, tend to be kind of given a little bit more time. You know, that's an interesting question, Shane. It's a, it's a great question. I, I, I think I share your intuition. I do think it's probably shortening in college, but I think I share your intuition because I, I, you do hear the rhetoric around college coaches. Part of it is part of the reason for it, Shane, is that they people feel like you can't judge them until they get their guys in there because they're responsible for the recruiting. Mm-hmm. It's not really fair in some way to judge them fully until they've had you know three years at least to get their yeah. guys in there. So that probably builds in a little more time, but it's a great empirical question because you could, you could model, you know, sur- the survivorship of coaches and just ask, how does that hazard rate compare NFL versus pros controlling for all the stuff that you would put in that model. Yeah. And I suspect you're right. I suspect it's a little bit shorter, but speaking of which, this is something I wanted to talk a little bit about on the college front, because I don't, I don't, this is another empirical question, but my sense is that we haven't had a year with this many major head coaching positions changing in college football like ever and there are other structural changes in college football right now that are that are coming about at the same time and the combination i think is going to lead to a much more fluid landscape in college football than we've had in a while you know we've had this thing kind of fixed around alabama georgia ohio state as like the summit and clearly head and shoulders above Mm -hmm. everyone else in talent in probability of making the playoff in a lot of national titles and that concentrated. There's some factors working against that right now. So we just had signing day, national signing day. The first of the national signing days in college football was last Wednesday. And a couple of things are interesting here. Uh, so name image and likeness NIL means that teams can essentially pay players to come there now. And they do. And there's a lot of money being spent. And so players are going you know, they face a prospect. Do you want to sit on Alabama's bench for three years? Or do you want to go to, I don't know, name it Oregon state. Maybe they've got a big booster out there. He wants to pay them and you can earn 
some decent money and get some playing time. And that may be a little more appealing. And so you could see some increasing breadth in where these guys sign. One thing, one of the things that happened last week, Texas A&M signed the number one class in the, in the country. Now it's not done. We've got another signing day. It's not over, but Texas A&M has risen since they moved to the sec. They were always between like 10 and 20. They moved to the sec and they start drifting up. And now they got the number one class. No one outside of Alabama or Georgia has signed the number one class in like 10 years. And here comes A&M, and, and I suspect they spent some money. They can now, and that just – it says the landscape might be shifting. I want to add a couple uh, – What? well, I've got what two more things to add. Money? Adi, go ahead. Go ahead. What do you mean they spent money? I thought that it's the, the uh, name and likeness is, the, is advertisers are paying them. How do they spend money? Uh, I mean they in a general sense, the community of people around – program and it's alumni. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, so I can I imagine that the universities are very coordinated about here is the merchandising or here are the deals that you will get if you come to blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's an athletic department would be negligent if they weren't doing what they could to facilitate. The, Do you have some idea how much it's worth? I mean, if you go to a, 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 a school like Oregon, for example, which has a, a loyal following, mostly locally, if you will, um, what is the value of a uh, name and likeness to uh, their Adi, we don't, we're, we're, we're just going to learn this. We don't know. This okay. is the first year. It's, it's totally fluid situation, but we had, I mean, there are quarterbacks starting quarterbacks. Bryce young at Alabama signed probably a million dollars worth of deals this year. And he hadn't played a snap. He was a, he was a redshirt freshman. Quinn Ewers, a high school kid out of, out of, out of um, South Lake Carroll in Texas. Signed a million dollars coming out of high school to, and went to go more than a million to go play for Ohio State. Never played, played one play. So we're, we're figuring these things out. The University of Texas puts together a program that's going to pay. It's not the University of Texas program. It's somebody around the University of Texas. Put together a program. Audie, you'll love this. That pays every offensive lineman on the roster $50,000 to go around town and do some charity work. Offensive lineman, everyone on the roster, $50,000. That is a game changer for recruiting in college football. And that's only part of the, that's only part of the process. No, and it really, also, but it does, I, I can see why it would induce parity because it really changes the calculation of a recruit, whether they can be like, well, I can be, you know, I can actually, you know, conditional on me. Why? Like, you know, going to the NFL or if I want to just prioritize my probability going to the NFL, I probably still want to go to like someplace like Alabama, but now if I can kind of actually play more for this other team. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And, but there's one other piece that's really critical here. And that's actually the, I think as powerful and that's the transfer portal. So players can change schools. Now I think it's just one time, but they can change schools. And so you've essentially got these market forces where teams can pay guys according to the value they ascribe to them. And also guys can move to wherever somebody values them more highly. Now, what do we know about the match between assets and uses they tend to the most valuable assets tend to go to the places where they're most valued or the places that that can get the most out of them and so i think because we're getting we're looking at a much more efficient market we probably in the end will see even greater concentration of the best players at the best at the best schools and it's going to be i mean this is all years Mm -hmm. in the playing out but these are fundamental structural changes and it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. The, the last piece in it is that the, with these coaching changes, we have a lot of excitement in little corners of the country that haven't had excitement for a while. So Miami's got a new coach they're excited about. USC has a new coach that they're excited about. Um, 
Michigan now have finally has a program back on, on maybe not equal footing with Ohio state, but they finally beat, they finally beat him and they're in the playoff. Um, we've just, it's just a little different than it has been in a while. And it's just after a stretch of everyone saying, you know, chalk, 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 we're tired of chalk. I think we've got a not very non-chalky Clemson's mm-hmm. lost both their offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. Um, one of the best coaches in Notre Dame's history just walked away from Notre Dame. They have a professional, you know, adult in charge at LSU for the first time in a while. So it's going to, it's an interesting landscape and interesting time in college football. Okay, guys, that's Q3. Let's call it there. Come back and we have an interview, a, a new technology startup. We're going to talk, talk about in Q4. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q4 now. Q4 has become our interview segment during pandemic. Have Shane Jensen here with me. This is Cade Massey, and we're delighted to welcome to the show the first time, Andrew Hall. Andrew is CEO and co-founder of Ballin. We're going to find out more about Ballin, but in general, Ballin is a football, and he's from Australia, so by football, he means soccer improvement app using AI and AR, that's artificial intelligence and augmented reality. Lots of interesting things going on there. Andrew is also a director at And Health. And Health is Australia's national digital health initiative. So very interested in some very interesting spaces. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Appreciate you making the time. You're calling in from Perth, Australia. It's about 6.45 in the morning down there. Appreciate you starting your day out with us and we gather you're, you're holding off a, a camping trip. Um, so appreciate you carving out some time for us. Listen, uh, a former student of ours, Dan Rooney, called you to our attention. Had, had tip to Dan for that. Uh, we, we're, we're aware of the role of computer vision, the blowing up of, uh, of soccer, not blowing up of soccer, the, 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 the untapped market of soccer around the world, the interest and the ability to get down to the youth market. All of these things converge in what you're doing. And so we want to hear more about it. What can you tell us about what Ballin is doing? Yes. Yeah, so the, the real the vision of Ballin was to put sophisticated analytics in the hands of the everyday grassroots athlete. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we we actually had a predecessor app called MyKicks that did quite well in the 2018 World Cup. It was our first computer vision experiment with some influencer marketing. We got that to the number one position on the UK App Store for sports. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, which was great, so that 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 was really the test for us to see whether whether people could actually use this type of technology in, on the handheld um, mobile phone. Andrew, let me stop you because I used computer vision in my intro, and you just used it, but some folks aren't going to know what it is. So, what exactly is computer vision? Why is it important? Yeah, so computer vision is a way of detecting shapes or objects um, in a, in a video feed. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's algorithms and computer vision. I guess is a is a subset of AI as well, but it's you know for us simplistically, it was a way of of detecting balls and goals, um, and and then you know re recreating a three dimensional trajectory using complicated physics on the back of those detections. So you take a two D plane, look at the sequencing of frames, and then you would sort of reconstruct into a trajectory, and that enabled us to get the analytics out of it. So yeah, mm-hmm. and that's in contrast to most motion tracking technologies where players are wearing some devices on them that are conveying where they are multiple times a second. This is very different from that. You're just looking at a video feed. Players are just doing what players do without any technology on them. And you're pulling out of that video feed where they are and all those. 
moment. That, that's right. It's sensorless tracking. The, the phone is the sensor, so to speak. So mm-hmm. no, nothing needs to be worn. Nothing needs to be worn on you. It, ha- it has limitations. So it's really good at sort of detecting in a, you know, exquisite metrics in a 30 by, you know, 30 feet cube, I would say. Mm-hmm. So we, we sort of look at, you know, exquisite detections within when that sort of cube area. But if you want to sort of it's not yet at the place where you could put a phone on the side of a field and measure what's going on on the other side of the field. The, mm-hmm. the depth there is a, a too massive. But in terms of what we call, you know, combine-esque type measurements, it, it's beautiful. All right. So that, that is, is another important dynamic. Computer vision is still relatively new and it's improving every year. We see new papers and new research advancing what it can do and it's one of these things where you just kind of bet on the future it's like look if i'm going to bet on what's going to be running the show 10 years from now my money's on this technology because it's still in its infant stage and it's almost caught up with the tracker stuff already yeah look and we were really lucky that that mike hicks is a really pivotal part of the ball and story because there are lots of models out there for detecting humans um you know in in the ai side but for detecting balls we were just lucky that we had a million penalty kicks stored in cloud from the MyKicks days, which had every permutation and variation of ball color, background, field type, which we used to train our models. And that, that's why the ball and models are so good is okay. we, we kind of collected that data set. Okay. So, Andrew, you said the combine environment. So this is you're, you're, you're putting apps on phones and, and kids are walking out to their yards or playing fields, setting up the phone. And they're doing something, and you're gonna and you're gonna do something with that video feed. That, that that's right. So we we sort of structure it in a player card, FIFA-esque, um, the the video game by EA Sports. So we we measure actually we measure eight skills now. So we measure shooting, dribbling, agility, pace, ball control, passing, and then we've actually added to the suite for some things that we can measure indoors. Because one thing we do find is in the in the winter months, less people are going outside. So we started measuring, you know, reaction time um, indoors um, as well as um, juggling, which is another surrogate for board control. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it seems that, that you use the augmented reality to set up a little space around you. So you, you, you really map a virtual world on top of the physical world. And then the, the system remembers where all those waypoints are. And then we, we, we analyze the video feed as you sort of run around and do things in those little micro courses. And that gets the metrics out. And we, we then sort of rank you, you know, um, how you're going. And, and then you can take action if you want based upon your results on, on various masterclass training programs. So, Andrew, let me understand a little bit more. And Shane's about to jump in because he was, he was especially interested coming in on what you're doing with AR. And you got to lost me there on what's... What, what AR is doing. So these guys are sitting in a defined space and on some playing field, and they've got a set of routines they need to do in order to be scored. What do they see? How do they lay out that space? And what does the AR piece play? And Shane, you might jump in if you can improve my question in some way, because I know the AR bit. No, yeah, I, I think I, I was going to ask me a more general thing, just kind of like that this is kind of all recording sort of on a sort of set, sort of a set kind of set of skills and a set course as opposed to something where you could just stick a phone in front of a, like a live soccer game going on and pull some of these measurables out of like multiple athletes performing at the same time, or even just one, but in, in more game action. So I guess maybe worth clarifying that. Yeah, look, absolutely. So, um, you know, we took the view that, that any sport can be broken down into a series of micro skills. So in football at six, and I guarantee if you looked at, you know, American football or, 
NHL, you know, ice hockey, you, you can break down the key movement skills into, into a bunch of subgroups. So we decided to look at discrete tests. So it's not the absolute predictor of your game day performance, but if these aren't under control, it's unlikely you'll be able to have mm-hmm. great game day performance. So mm-hmm. the platform at the moment is very much on measuring those discrete skills. It doesn't need to be a field. It can be, some, again, it can be done in your bedroom, um, others in your backyard, but but some people mm-hmm. go down to fields like for kicking goals as well, but you don't you don't necessarily need to. So mm-hmm. a big thing for us was was really making that technology accessible to anyone that just literally had a mobile um, phone or a smartphone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we pulled down the app and walked outside, it would tell me to do what? I want to say I want to improve uh, agility. I want to I want to test my agility, and and so what what do I do in order to do that? Yeah, so you um, you would take your phone and it would take you through a stepwise process of laying down some markers on the ground. So the augmented mm-hmm. reality is really a distance tracker, yep. right? Yep. So it would say, put put cone one here, which could be a water bottle, a cone, a jumper for the first part of the course, and then it'll direct you where to put the next part of the course yep. and the next part of the course. And that that's really important because we need to get depth perception into what we're measuring. And the augmented okay. reality gives us the ability to give the depth perception to get the metrics out because otherwise we just, we, it would be, you know, very inaccurate. Mm-hmm. So, and and so, it gives you a ability to kind of standardize the course in a way yeah. that otherwise you wouldn't be able to. I, I mean, I, I think that's really clever. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's it. So the AR really standardizes the course and helps you, helps you map it out. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. and again, you know, it's it, think of the AR as, painting of the of the virtual measurement world over the top of the physical world Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. good all right so i go in i do this thing i upload my data or it captures the app captures the data and then it's going to score me against some reference group or some algorithm that's been built is that right so where does that stuff come from yes that's that's great uh great question so Two, two parts to that. One is um, we built this, the, the real beauty of our technology is it runs on the device, okay. no, no internet connection required. And that, that is quite an exquisite feat of, feat of engineering. So we're sort of leading the way in what I'd call sort of lightweight AI algorithms to run on the edge. Okay. Because if you've got, a, you've got a processor in the cloud, it's got unlimited c- compute power, but these are big files. They can be up to six, 700 megabytes at a time. Okay. And our target market doesn't necessarily have, um, you know, internet connections to, to run that data, right? Yeah, so right. we brought it out to run on the phone, which is, which is really, that's a huge barrier to entry, right, is to have those algorithms. So then what we, what we do is we, we've actually modelled our, um, our ratings off the world's largest talent ID study for football. And that, that, that was an open source study um, done out of Germany um, from about 2005 to 2015, and it's ongoing. And so they, they you know, we were, we were always like, you know, wouldn't a player card be cool if we could measure it? And then we stumbled across this research study that basically measured most things on a player card. Okay. And they, they were able to show that in these tests, which we've adapted for, you know, our cube, because they were running basketball courts, we, they were able to show that they could really quite clearly separate out beginner, intermediate, pro level, and even more interestingly, be able to predict at age 12 who had a much higher odds of becoming a pro player in the Bundesliga by the time they turned 18. Jeez, so, okay. Yeah. So we went really heavy into the science of that. In fact, you know, some of those researchers have had input in what we're doing, and okay. we, we decided that they were really good tests at grading people. And so what we then did was once we decided they were the right tests, 
we then went and collected our own database um, across Australia and the UK of, um, of different kids in different abilities. And then we came up with what we consider to be a normal distribution. And that's how we rank your, your rating. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a 99, you, you are in the top 2% of, mm-hmm. of what we've seen in the past and the variability that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And has there been enough time since you started that collection where you actually are starting to get actual validation? Because, you know, again, yeah. the extent that you're able to kind of predict, say, some kind of early career success based on this, has have, have you actually had some of the, your kind of early people that you were measuring actually get to the, you know, become like outcomes? We, we, we haven't yet because we've only had it out for four months for Ballin. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but we can definitely see really interesting talent and we and we have and there are um but what's interesting is there might be someone that has incredible ball control skills but their their pace is behind so it's really about the combination of those eight tests and mm-hmm. what that means. so we, we for example there was a young kid in norway i think that we saw that had some of the fastest dribbling times um and we were like wow you know what's what's this kid's going to be amazing but their shooting wasn't great yet but mm-hmm. but again them the benefit was well, I'm, I don't need to work on that part of my game. I need to work on this part of my game if I want to become a complete player. And that, that's sort mm-hmm. of the philosophy we've taken is, you know, either work on your strengths or identify your weaknesses and spend the time working on them to become better. Mm-hmm. And then you guys are pointing them to resources in some way, or are you just is that, like you're there for them to do longitudinal tests and to see how they improve over time? Well, no, no, we, we actually, um, our monetization model is it's, it's free to measure yourself. But if you're inclined to want to improve, we have, you know, about 350 training videos that sit behind the paywall. Oh, interesting. So, okay. yeah, so if you, if you want to, you know, if you didn't like your agility score, well, we, we've got, you know, world-class training programs that are developed in collaboration with some sports science researchers to actually help you work on that. Okay. And, Andrew, it seems like a neat feature of that is you can observe the progress or the success of those training modules because you've got such a precise way of measuring the, the skill. That's it. Right. So we, we, and we are seeing that at the moment, right. We're seeing people that come in that, you know, um, that improve quite dramatically. So, you know, quick gains, are, you know, easy gains are quick. Um, harder gains require hard work, right. Many months of training. Uh-huh. So that's the monetization model. What other aspirations do you have for this technology? I mean, to what extent does it play a role in like, talent evaluation talent identification or are there going to be clubs interested in this kind of technology yeah yeah we we have a, a couple of confidential um partnerships with some epl clubs at the moment um that that are you know very curious about what we're doing because ultimately you know i was at one of the big you know international governing bodies a couple of years ago and they were like wow if we've got a kid in africa that's signaling we can send the great phone down there and rather than going to the nba we can try and, you know, convince them to come into, into the world of football. So right. we, we definitely see that as a, as a, a huge opportunity in the future. Um, yeah. How do you get, presumably this is for that purpose. Well, for in general business model, you want as many people as possible, but one of the real virtues of this approach is it's so light. And so it can kind of go anywhere. And, you know, it's hard for these clubs to send, scouts or even technology into playing fields in some corners of the world your app can go pretty much everywhere so how do you get the word out how do you how do you proselytize and get it into these far-flung corners yeah look and just on that point we'll, we'll never replace a talent scout but but we'll tell them where to spend their time better right 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 yeah yeah so so we we've been quite successful with influencer marketing and viral coefficients so what what we typically do is so in our partnership with kevin de bruyne you know 
he promotes through his social media. He's got 30 million followers and that, that gets the top of the funnel reach out. Mm-hmm. And then we also, and what we found though, is we amplify his messaging into the TikTok ecosystem with the world freestyler community. And that really hits the, the, the gen alpha gen. Hold on. Andrew, what's the world freestyler community? Oh, so that so that's that's the juggling um, the juggling people. So w- one of our close collaborators is is Andrew Henderson. He's the five time world freestyle champion, and okay. he has a, has a couple of million of his own followers. So they're the people that do incredible tricks with the football, and they they okay. really have that, that grassroots following. Oh, interesting! Very cool! Very cool! Yeah, and I mean, uh, you've already kind of mentioned like one major way in which you can help kind of people out, uh, like like young athletes, by kind of pointing out a way in which maybe their skill set is somewhat outlying from the kind of consensus good soccer player, like, oh, your dribbling's really great, but, you know, it's not commensurate with your shooting or something like that. But I can imagine that there, there's obviously not one single consensus type of way of succeeding in soccer. So, you know, the statistician me says, like, this is a giant clustering kind of exercise where you can try and identify essentially sub, like subgroups or different combinations of these different skills that all have kind of successful outcomes. So I, I don't know the extent you're doing that, but it seems like a huge opportunity to do something like that. Yeah, there is. So we we took the philosophy early, though, that the talent ID is important for the kids that want to make it and the benchmarking. But but what's more important is self-determination theory and supporting the grassroots, you know, Division 7 player that wants to have a better love of the game. Mm-hmm. And, and so... We will absolutely help those those very high potential athletes, but again, it's it's meant to be fun. It's play based, but it can really help people just with general mastery as well. That's awesome. Listen, Andrew, thank you for the time. Appreciate it, especially this early in the morning down in Australia. Fascinating stuff that you guys are doing. Um, we look forward to seeing more of it down the road. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Andrew Hall, founder and CEO of Ballin. That's B A L L N. They are putting. Soccer analysis, soccer technology on phones around the world where kids and amateur players can evaluate their skills and improve their skills. That has been another Wharton Moneyball, another two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week for the whole team. Shane Jensen here in the final quarter with me, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. This has been Cade Massey. Big thanks to Matty D. Matt Dad's our boss, Deion Simpkins, associate boss man. You guys, appreciate you being here. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Wharton Money